All right. Well, how about we uh, find our seats and find a Bible, and let's open the Bibles up to Luke chapter 18. If you're willing to stand with me, that'd be awesome, as I read uh, from Luke 18, beginning in verse 9. Luke 18, we're in verses 9 through 14. Jesus told his disciples a parable, for he told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I'm not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. This is God's word. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you tonight, and we bring you our, ourselves. And we ask you, Lord, um, just to speak to us. We, we need to hear from you, Lord. We, we not only want to hear from you, we want to be changed by you. And so we ask that you, Holy Spirit, would be our teacher tonight, that you would take the truth of your word and apply it to our lives, um, that people who walked in here weary would sense their burdens lifted. Um, for people who walked in here um, wondering if you're real and if you care, that they would come to know you, the living God. I just pray you'd bring encouragement to people's lives and transformation, Lord. We are so helpless, Lord, I know, in, in even our own change, in our own lives. And, and so we cry out to you, Lord, to, to have your way in us through your word tonight. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. You can be seated. Thank you for standing. Um, verse 9 begins here in our passage uh, with this clear target audience that Jesus is speaking to. Uh, we're told that this parable was spoken to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and in turn treated other people with contempt. Now, I think just at the face of that, when we think of being righteous today, I think a lot of us immediately, we just don't connect very much with that. I mean, the word righteousness alone today is kind of a derogatory word. We only often hear it in our society, or often even in our own conversations in a negative way. You know, we, we use it to kind of speak down about people who we think are really, um, you know, they think they're so great and stuff like that, like, oh, that person's so righteous. And so often we might read a passage like this where Jesus is speaking to a particular audience like that, and we might go, that's just for traditional cultures, right? That doesn't really seem to be relevant to us today. But quite honestly, guys, it, it very much so is. Um, because see, in the Old Testament and in the New Testament, the word righteousness in Greek and Hebrew uh, basically carries with it the idea of being approved of, uh, or being accepted, or passing someone's scrutiny in your life. And, and if we're just being really honest, I mean, we are all deeply hungry for approval, for approval. Uh, in our culture, maybe that just manifests itself in in sort of our self-esteemish or over-psychologized ways that we, we think about our lives and, and trying to grow into being a happier, wholer person, whatever it takes for me to get there. 
or it can manifest itself in our society at large having a new morality um, that often goes against what is true in Christianity and in the Christian faith. And so uh, every culture has a morality, a way of saying this is what you should believe, this is how you should behave, and if you don't, you're out. And so we feel this pressure often to try to live into these new standards that are surrounding us because we long to be approved of by other people. If you think about it this way, we all just long for somebody outside of us to come to us and to say, you're all right. You're all right. I approve of you. Yet even if you get that from a certain person or even a crowd, whether it's for a moment or for a long period of time, it just never seems to be enough. It's never enough. What the Bible is teaching us is that this hunger that you feel to be approved of, for someone to come to you and say, you're all right, is actually uh, rooted in your desire to find approval from God. And I've wondered that as you walk into a room like this tonight. I've wondered if if you sit here and you reflect for a moment, I wonder what you would say when I ask you, what is God's perception of you right now? How does God see you? You might even say, how does God feel about you right now? And and even more important, how would you even determine that? Like, what are the metrics that you're going off of? Would you sit here and and evaluate that based on how your week went, whether you had a good week or a bad week? So maybe on a good week, uh, you would live this entire past week and, you know, you, you wouldn't have you know, act it out in any way that you normally are tempted to act out. Maybe there's some besetting sins in your life and these things are just constantly weighing you down. Maybe it's, it's some form of indulgence, whatever that is for you. And, and so you constantly give in to that sort of indulgence, or maybe you have an anger problem and you lash out at people in anger. And so a good week would be getting through that whole week and not really yelling at anybody. Maybe you just were nice to people or you read your Bible every day, right? We have these metrics that if you walk through a week and you didn't do certain things and you did do certain things, you would come in here and go, I had a good week. And so maybe you walk in here and you had a good week, whatever that is for you. And you sit here and you go, I think God's pretty happy to see me. I think he's feeling pretty good about this, right? He's pretty glad to have me on his team. Or maybe you walk in here and you're like, he's not happy to see me at all. He's, he's just shaking his head at me. And the reason is because you evaluated how your week went and you, you gave in to those temptations that are often besetting for you. You're like, I haven't read my Bible the entire week. I didn't pray all week or I had an opportunity to share the gospel and I dodged that moment or I've been really stingy or whatever it is for you. And so you sit here and you go, God does not approve of me. Right? We have this this displeasure that we we sense that God has towards us, his lack of approval. I see Jesus says, with that in mind, this longing for approval that we have in our hearts, he says, let me tell you a story about two men and how they both dealt with this deep underlying problem. One way works and one day does not. And that's what we see in this outline. We have two people, two different ways to live. We're calling one way the way up, way to live, that most of us, that's how we live. Or there's the way down sort of way of living. And we really see here one solution to this deep underlying problem of our longing for approval. What we hope to find, I hope we see from this passage, and really this is one of the distinctives of our church family, is we say the way down is the way up. The path of humility 
is the path of Christ. It's the path that he calls us to. So let's look first at these two people, again, in our story. And we see them clearly uh, labeled for us here in verses 10 and verse 14. Uh, we see two men in our story, and they both do a couple of things. One, they went to pray. See that in verse 10? Went up to the temple to pray, and they went home, right? So they both went home in verse 14, and they both have a similar desire. They want to have their conscience cleansed, their guilt cleansed. They want to be approved of by God. I mean, this was their aim in going to the temple. Verse 14 tells us that one, though, goes home justified, goes home approved of, right? So so their hope is to be justified, to be put right. And and it's interesting because the the temple was at the heart of Jewish life. and, And so if you wanted to be in relationship with God, this is where you would go. And so Jesus uses these two men to illustrate the extreme ends of the spectrum of Jewish thought. Like who's at the extreme ends of the kinds of people in this world? And so he goes to these far ends, and as he does this, he's basically holding up a mirror before us and asking, did you know that you are actually in this parable too? Your name might not be there, but the point is to hold up a mirror to see that you're in this parable. He's basically holding up a mirror and saying to you, how do you relate to God? What do you do with your guilt? And so only one of these men will leave right with God. And you know the end of the story. Let's just say you didn't, okay? Who are you putting your money on? Right? Who's going to walk away right with God? If you were betting, right? I'm not advising that or anything, but if you were, who are you putting your money on? Well, we have the Pharisee, right? We see the first man in verse 10. He's a Pharisee. These, these men were literally known as the separated ones. Their desire was to be made right with God through their law-keeping, And you have to think of it this way, because it's true, but a Pharisee was a model citizen in society, okay? They were a model citizen in society. I think for anybody who's become really familiar with the Bible, and if you've read through the end of the gospel accounts, you you know, right, the Pharisees are the bad guys, right? Like, you don't want to be like a Pharisee. If someone called you a Pharisee tonight, you wouldn't take it as a compliment, right? We That's our association with Pharisees. But if you were receiving the gospel of Luke, like, during the time when this is really happening, when it was first written. The Pharisees are the good guys, right? They're the model person. I mean, this would be a kind of person that if he walked in here tonight, you would go, oh man, what an honor. We're so glad that you're here. Let's give you the the seat of highest honor. You can have the balcony all to yourself or whatever it would be, you know, for you. And you'd walk over and you'd say, it's such a privilege. We're so glad that you're here, right? We would would treat this person this way. You might even acknowledge this person in the room. It's such an honor to have so-and-so here with us tonight. You know, it's that kind of person. And then on the other end of the spectrum, we have the tax collector who would have been hated by the Jewish people because tax collectors, they were in cahoots with the Romans who had come in and preoccupied the land. They were essentially robbers. And so the Roman government, what they would do is they would basically sell franchises that weren't like Chick-fil-A's and McDonald's and stuff, but you could, you could put in a bid to, to have a certain region that you would go around and collect taxes from. You'd be like a franchise of that area. And you'd go around and and collect all the taxes that people owed to the Roman government, right? To the enemy. And so you would do that. But in order for you to make money, you would have to tax people above what they actually owed so that you could make your money. So these people were walking around fleecing everybody, trying to make their own money off of that, right? So basically, if you were a parent and you were trying to raise kids in 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 the Middle East in this time, 
you would tell your kids, I want you to grow up, and you see that Pharisee over there? That's your example, right? Do you see those tax collectors over there? Do not become like that, right? This is what you would even give as maybe an example to your kids. So the tax collector is at the other end, and they have two completely different outcomes, right? One goes away justified. That's not the guy that you think. Jesus is intentionally disorienting us here. I mean, surely this Pharisee tried his best. Surely he lived and died. And if he did so in Gresham and you went to his funeral, the pastor would stand up during that service and, and he would confidently, you would confidently agree with the pastor's words that, that this man is now in the presence of God for all of eternity. He's in a better place. He's in heaven. So how in the world could he go home? And I don't say this tritely. How could he go home on the way to hell when he thinks he's on the way to heaven? Not justified, not right with God. I mean, this is devastating and a disorienting story. And that's often the case with Christianity, if we're just being honest. Christianity is almost always the opposite of what we expect. Often, the way the world works, you can almost just assume what the opposite is and go, that's what Christianity really is. So if society's goal for all of us is that we would be good people, we would just be good people in this society, most of us often then apply that to God's desire for us, that God merely wants us to be good people. But Jesus is saying that good people are going to miss out on God altogether. That's actually the shock of this. He leaves with God as his enemy and not as God as his friend. Only one leaves with the approval that no one can steal from them. So Jesus is holding up a mirror for all of us who have this attitude like this Pharisee. And the question is, why won't just trying hard to be good enough solve my approval problem? And if not, what can? Well, that's where we see these two approaches to living. The first approach in our passage is the way up approach. And there's two marks to this kind of approach. This person who lives this way up approach, he has confidence in himself. And number two, he he lives comparing himself to other people. So let's look at this confidence that he has in in himself. The text literally says in verse 11, the Pharisee takes up his position in the temple. It literally says he prays to himself. He goes in and takes up his position And so if you were a Pharisee, you would go into the temple like this and you'd actually stand there and you might lift up your hands. And as you pray, you were doing so with this posture of receiving blessing from God. So this Pharisee goes in the temple, he takes up his posture to pray, right? It's a performance. Then look at verse 11. He stands up and it says, actually, he prays literally toward himself. Calvin called this being curved inward, right? What this is saying is that the focus is not God at all, but on himself. And you notice that in his prayer, right? The first word is God, and then the word I takes over. I mean, five times in these two short sentences, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. What does this say about himself? Well, he's basically believing and thinking, man, I'm nailing this thing. I'm like nailing this whole religious thing. I mean, I fast twice a week, right? And the law only required that you fast one day a year on Day of Atonement on Yom Kippur. So I'm literally fasting 103 more days a year than what's even required of me, right? How are you guys doing at your fasting? This guy's nailing it, right? 
I mean, he seems to be doing pretty well in some big categories of obedience too. I mean, he doesn't rob. That's great. He's not an evildoer, which kind of encompasses everything. He doesn't cheat on his wife. That's awesome. And then he gives to God of his own finances, the little that he has. He's not even a producer in society. He's not a farmer. He, you know, he's not a merchant or any of these kinds of things, right? He's just a religious person. So, I mean, he even ties of the little that he has back to God. What does Jesus say that he's doing? He has, this guy's given his own assessment of his life. What does Jesus say he's doing while he's praying? Look at verse 14. Jesus says, this guy's exalting himself. He's exalting himself. He's living the way up approach. That's what he's doing, even while he's doing spiritual things. I mean, through doing this act of prayer, he's actually not even praying at all because he's exalting himself. This is pretty scary, isn't it? I mean, we could have a church full of people, you and me, who think we're praying and we're not. He's trying to live and gain approval in terms of what he does. I can do all these things. I did all these things for you, God, but really they're for him. You know? Spurgeon once told a helpful illustration about this idea. He says, you know, once upon a time, and this is a different generation, it's like 1800s, okay, so there's a few things in here that are a little disconnected from your life. But he says, uh, once upon a time, there was a very poor farmer. He was a carrot farmer and uh, in rural England. And during one harvest season, he harvested the largest carrot he'd ever seen. And so he sees this enormous carrot and he goes, man, this is a carrot that befits a king. And so he travels to see his king. He gets an audience with this king and he brings this carrot before the king. And he says, oh, king, you have always been such a wonderful, fair and gracious king to me. I love you very much. As a token of my love for you, I want you to have this carrot. It is a gift which you truly deserve. The king was like deeply touched. Man, wow, this is an amazing carrot, right? And he goes, thank you for this gift. I happen to own the farmland that surrounds your plot. I would like to give you that farmland as a gift for you, right? Please know that it is also a small token of my love for you. There was a nobleman on hand who watched this unfold. And he thinks to himself, man, if the king would do that for a carrot, what would a larger gift get me? So he goes out and he finds the most majestic horse in the world. And he brings it the next day to the king. And he says, king, you are a wonderful and worthy king. As a token of my love for you, I want you to have this horse as a gift. And the king, being very wise, he sees through all this. And he goes, yesterday, the poor man was giving the carrot to me. But today you are giving the horse to yourself. He sees right through why he's doing what he's doing. In the same way, you guys, when we do things, and in doing these things for God, we have this desire to elevate ourselves in the eyes of God so that he would approve of us. We're not doing it because we love God, we're doing it because we love ourselves. And that sort of confidence leads to the second mark, which is you have to then live comparing yourself to other people. I mean, we see that in verse 11. When I have confidence in what I'm doing to make me acceptable to God, then there is always a comparison of myself to other people that has to take place. Our confidence in ourselves comes through our comparison to other people. And just think about how this even works. I mean, think about the last time you invited somebody over to your house. What did you do? Your apartment or something. 
you cleaned it up, right? Because you wanted it to be presentable when everybody came over. But I also know what you did because it's what I do too, right? There's all these things that are laid out and you don't have time to clean them up or maybe you don't even have a place for them. You haven't organized it yet. And so what do you do? We all have a place in our house that we just toss all the junk in and we close the door and we go, no one's going to go in there, right? Maybe it's your closet. Maybe it's your bedroom or something like that. And we just hope, right? No one just gets the idea of wandering around our house and looking into those rooms, right? That would be strange, but you're not going to make them feel bad about it, right? You, you, you want to lock it away almost and hope no one ever finds out about it. We all have those places in our house. And we all, all of us have in a similar way a, a dark room in our hearts, right? The home of our lives. It's a dark room of guilt. Right? It's a place where we stuff away all the guilt and all the shame and we hide it there and we just hope nobody ever discovers it. Right? We all have this, even the Pharisee. So how does he deal with his guilt? Well, he deals with it by putting other people down. That's how he deals with the guilt. He makes guilt a relative thing. Do you see? I've got to keep pushing other people down. Do you see what he says? He says, I am not like other people. That's how I cope. I'm certainly not like the people in Hollywood. And I'm not like the people in, you know, the core of urban Portland or something like that. And I'm not like the people who, you know, were doing the protests that I don't like or the people on Insurrection Day last year. You know, I'm not like those people, whatever political party I don't like. And so we, we compare ourselves to other people and we pat ourselves on the back. And the scary thing is that when I pat myself on the back, I often imagine that it's God's hand that's actually patting it. So do you see how this works? I'm trying to hide my guilt away by saying, hey, don't look over here, right? Look over there. Oh God, divert your eyes from this room, right? Or to all of you, don't look at this, look at that person over there. Do you see? Look at that tax collector. I mean, what's he even doing here in the temple? He doesn't even belong here. He, he thinks, this Pharisee thinks, he's in a whole different category than other people. And in so many ways, he's actually right. In so many ways, he's right. He isn't the tax collector. The tax collector robs people and takes money from them. And he's saying, no, I, I give money to God. And this is how comparison works. We compare ourselves to people that really accommodate us into being the kind of people we hope we can be. Um, I, I grew up in a small town, or I thought it was huge, uh, in Montana. It was Helena, Montana. It's the capital city, the big capital, pretty awesome place to live. And I, it's where I grew up. And in growing up in Helena, we had like 40,000 people maybe. And we thought we lived in the big city. Because we had like a Shopco and an Applebee's and all these amazing places that huge cities have, right? But we really did. We thought we were living in a big city growing up. Why? Because we compared ourselves to all these tiny little cities that surrounded us. It was like Montana City and Boulder and Townsend and Elliston and just all these tiny places. And we look at them and like, they don't even have a stoplight, right? So we're huge. But then as a kid, we would travel to places like Missoula or Billings that have 100,000 plus people. And all of a sudden, when you compare yourself to them, you're like, man, we're tiny. Why don't we have that? You know, how come our city can't grow? Right? Do you see how this works, right? What you compare yourself to defines who you are. At one moment, I'm a huge city. I'm living in a big city. The next moment, I'm in a tiny little town. And so I think the question is begged from our lives as we approach a passage like this. Well, who do you compare yourself to? 
I mean, who do you, who do you think that you're better than? Right? Do you, that you line up and you go, well, I'm not like them. See, comparison is the way up kind of life. It's having confidence in ourselves through comparison to other people. And we can look down on people for a whole host of reasons that are actually pretty scary. I mean, we find ourselves uh, maybe looking at someone, if you've never had an affair, and you go, man, they ruined their marriage, they had an affair, and you kind of shake your head and you go, how can anybody do that? Or you look at someone who's just struggling within the throes of addiction, and you're like, man, why would someone ruin their life like that? And you just kind of shake your head. Or you look at someone's greed or sexual addiction or something like that, and we just shake our heads and we're going, why would someone do that? But what we're actually really saying is, you know, God, I thank you that I'm not like them. And then it's really tricky because we do the opposite. And we can have more compassion for people who struggle with those things or come from broken homes or whatever it is. And we can look around and we go, man, look at these judgmental, like legalistic people. Like, Lord, I'm so thankful that I'm not like those people who are so judgy. And it just keeps flipping itself. I mean, we're, t- we're all tempted to think like this. Me too. I mean, do you want to know what my first thought was when I read this passage and studied this week? And I said, I literally was thinking, God, I'm so thankful that I'm not like this Pharisee. This goes deep, doesn't it? Really deep. And C.S. Lewis once said, a proud man is always looking down on things and people. And of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. He's referring to God. And that leads us to the way down approach. Because ironically, the other guy, he won't even look up. Because in a way, he's been looking up at God and not down on other people. He doesn't prop himself up by putting others down in comparison. He's humbled as he compares himself to God. And this is really important to see because the last thing we want to do is walk out of here tonight going, I'm just going to try not to compare myself to other people. That's the way. That's not the way. You're always going to compare yourself. The trick is that we move in our hearts to actually comparing ourselves to the one we're supposed to be, the one we're made in the image of. So how do you start living the way down kind of life? How do you become humble? Well, it shifts when we see ourselves compared with God. When I was growing up in high school and college, for some reason, I just always had to have a white undershirt on, those Hanes white t-shirt undershirts. I I wore them religiously. I couldn't go a day without wearing one, whether I was wearing another t-shirt on top or a button-up or whatever. I had, that's all all I ever wore, Right. And so this is the way it worked as a, as a gross teenager and college student, right? Over the years, as you wear these white, fresh T-shirts, you, can, you still consider them white, but you're like pitting these things out. You're, you got greasy stuff or they're getting dirty. And over time, even though you're washing them, you look at them and you're like, that's a white T-shirt because I'm comparing them to the blue T-shirts or the black T-shirts or whatever else kind of T-shirts I have. I go, that's a white T-shirt. But then once a year, It was a glorious day. My mom would buy a new pack of maybe five or so t-shirts and I would receive them and I would lay them out on the bed, those bleached, white, awesome t-shirts and all of a sudden I'd have a realization those white t-shirts are actually not that white. They're tan, right? They're flesh-colored or something, right? It was kind of gross and disturbing, right? Because all of a sudden I stopped comparing those t-shirts to the other t-shirts and I compared them to an actual fresh, hot-off-the-press white t-shirt. And that's exactly how it works when we compare ourselves to others or to God. 
And as we approach God in all of his holiness and whiteness, that should have a real effect on us. I was reminded this week of a, of a story how in 1966, during the World Cup, England won the World Cup in soccer that year. And at the match, after they had won that World Cup, Queen Elizabeth was actually in the stands. And the team was supposed to walk up into the stands, greet the queen, and she handed them the trophy, the World Cup trophy. And so in this picture is Bobby Moore. He's like a famous soccer player. And he was interviewed after this event, before he received the trophy from Queen Elizabeth. And they said, man, as you were walking up to Queen Elizabeth, that must have been like the highlight, the most amazing moment in your life, like so exhilarating. He said, actually, it was the most terrifying moment of my life. He said, as I was walking up to greet the queen, all I could focus in on is her pure, unstained white gloves. And I thought, I have to shake her hand. And he looked down and he saw how muddy his hands were. It's amazing. You can go on YouTube and actually watch this scene because as he's walking up, he's trying to wipe the mud off of his hands as he's terrified of shaking this queen's hands and ruining her gloves. See, the queen's gloves were white on the outside. His mud was, was muddy on the outside. But guys, when we approach God, he is holy, holy, holy inside and out. He's dazzling in his holiness. I mean, the purest white, if you, if you want to continue to use that image. And we, you guys, are not just dirty on the outside. But our shadow side of our very being cannot be cleaned by us just wiping them off on a piece of fabric. Our uncleanness is a real problem. And in verse 13, we see a man who knows that. Because what's he doing in verse 13? He's standing at a distance. He doesn't feel like he belongs here. He won't even look up to heaven. He doesn't prop himself up like the Pharisee and, and hold up his hands in order to receive blessing from God. No, he buries his head. He beats his chest and he cries out for mercy. He knew how God saw him in his guilt. He knew that God could see the room that he is locked away. He knew all of his sins had piled up and, and whether they were embarrassing sins that he wanted anybody to know about or if they were the refined sins that we all kind of accept, you know, in our cultures. He knew that God knew them and saw them for what they really were. And notice he says, God have mercy on me, a sinner. But literally it says, have mercy on me, the sinner. That's what it says. He's basically looking up at God and saying, do you want an example of human rebellion? Do you want to see someone of human rebellion? It's me, God. If you want to see someone who is pushed you aside and taken center stage. It's me, God. That's me. He says, the room in my house that I've tried to keep everyone away from is full, and above all, it's full of the fact that I have ignored your authority, and I've taken all of your good gifts, good things in life, like my family and friends and fun and food and you name it, and I've made up my own rules for how I'm going to treat those things. God, have mercy on me. See, the wonder of this passage, we have no idea what was in the private room for him. And if we're being honest, I mean, we want to be an honest, genuine church, and so we do know things about each other, but we don't know everything about each other. I don't know the things that are in your room, and, and you don't know the things that are in my room. But God does. And it's a mark of our humility. It's a mark of our sorrow. When we come to the place, we genuinely cry out to God, have mercy on me. 
That's his perspective on his life. But, I mean, look at God's verdict over him. God accepts his simple prayer. Do you see that? See, Christians, you guys, are not Christians because they're good enough, but because they've received God's mercy. That's what makes you a Christian. Christians are not approved of because they're good, but because they're forgiven. This is actually the first step in being put right with God. Remarkably, the first step is knowing that you aren't right with God. That's the first step. And so, you guys, we make no spiritual progress until we look within and we take responsibility for what we see. Have you done that? Or have you said what your culture teaches us nowadays, that I'm just a victim of all the things that I've done? It's my parents' fault. It's my wiring's fault. My personality's fault. It's my teacher's fault. It's my economic status's fault. Why are the things wrong with my life and the things that I've done? Oh, it's something outside of me. It's someone else's fault. I didn't really do that. We just shift the blame. But faith, guys, conversion, deep approval starts with saying, I am the sinner. You want an example? God, it's me. This is the way down kind of living. But the way up kind of life is, is like being a person who goes to the doctor and says, doctor, I'm fine. I mean, I got a good resting heart rate, right? My blood pressure seems to be good, like I'm in decent shape. I mean, just look at me, right? And he goes, the doctor says to you, you're not listening. The tests are back and they're not good. Right? It's cancer. You're dying from the inside out. Right? This is the way up kind of person, looking outside in, not realizing that they're dying from the inside out. See, what we have here is, is two very unimpressive people. What we don't want to walk away with is go, I want to be like the tax collector. No, you don't want to be like the tax collector, right? Neither of these people impress God. But look at what Jesus says. He says, I tell you, I tell you, if you've been zoning out, zone in here, right? What is Jesus' point? I tell you, this man who was wrecked before God went home justified, pure, spotless, as if he did nothing wrong and everything right. Is it scandalous? Yes, it is. Notice it is, it's also passive, right? It's something that's done to him, not by him, which is the opposite of the Pharisee. And it's past tense, right? It's done once and for all. Guys, God accepts you before you're good, not when you're good enough, because you'll never get there. That great hymn says, if you tarry until you're better, you will never come at all. How can this happen? How can God's anger and rightful judgment of me be turned away from my guilt? Well, there's only one solution. One solution. And it's in verse 14. It's actually the way down. But not in you going the way down, but in somebody else. See, don't be deceived. This man, this tax collector, isn't approved of by God just because he's humble as if humility is an act that you perform that gains God's approval. No. The man is justified because of God's mercy. The secret is God only pours out his mercy on the humble, on those who know they are guilty and deserve God's judgment. So, so think about this. This tax collector, he's in the temple, right? He would have looked up while in the temple, and what would he have seen? He would have seen the altar. 
animals that are being brought in and killed and sacrificed. And so if you were part of a Jewish home, you would bring in an unblemished lamb to be killed. And the youngest member of that house would often ask, why would the lamb be killed? And the parents would often say, well, because we deserve to die for our sin. But God has allowed that that lamb be killed in our place as a substitute. So think about it. As the tax collector's going, have mercy on me, O God, right? He would have been able to see the blood that paid for sin because only death could pay for it. The only way to be justified, the only way to have your guilt and your approval problem ultimately dealt with is to look at what Jesus says about himself down in verse 31. Look in verse 31. He says, see, we are going to Jerusalem. And everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished. For he will be delivered over to the Gentiles, and he will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon. And after flogging him, they will kill him. And on the third day, he will rise. Jesus is saying, my blood will be shed in Jerusalem. That's why I'm going there. I am the Lamb of God. I will die. What's our solution? Well, it's actually seeing Jesus, who's really the only person who could stand up and say, I am not like other men. I don't have the guilt that you all have. I don't have the locked room that you all deal with. But I will willingly head to the cross so that God will pour out his righteous anger against sin on me so that those who know their need for mercy and cry out for it, that they will be justified. See, Jesus lived this way down as the way up kind of life, as Philippians says, have this mind in yourselves that was yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but he emptied himself. He takes on flesh, he takes on the form of a servant and humbles himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross, the lowest point. And therefore God has highly exalted him So that everyone who goes, have mercy on me, O God, would know of his grace. See, every knee is going to bow one day, and for Christians, the knee bowing starts today. See, do you see, when you see Jesus go to Jerusalem and die, do you see him doing that for you? It's like if if, if your Christian maturity, guys, the more we mature in Christ, the bigger God gets before our eyes the more we mature in Christ, the bigger the cross becomes to why I see more and more how much mercy I've needed. It's like if you're out on on the Pacific Ocean, right? Which I heard you're not supposed to be right now because there's a tsunami thing, right? But if you're out on the Pacific Ocean, you're in a boat and you see the land far off, what happens to the land the closer you get to it? The land gets bigger and bigger and bigger the closer that you get. See, the the closer you get to the heart of God and the closer you get to the foot of the cross, the bigger it becomes and you see how much mercy you've actually needed. This is what maturity looks like. And then in light of the cross, as you sit there, do you really think that if you did better in reading the Bible this week, that God is somehow going to prove of you more? while you sit there at the cross and you see what Jesus went through for you, 
Are you going to walk into a room like this and evaluate your life based upon what you did that week or didn't do and go, God loves me, God not so much today? Even if you, if you gave into temptation and some besetting sins in your life and you walk into a room like this on a Sunday, do you really think after you've looked at the cross that you're going to go, yeah, Jesus, I know you died, but I did this this week so your approval isn't as, as set on me? No, he paid for your sin. Guys, Christ's obedience is so spectacular that there is nothing we can do to add to it. And his death was so final that nothing could take away from it. So now what does Scripture say about what you should feel like or how you should approach God? Hebrews says we approach him with boldness. That's what it says. Not the kind of fake, confident boldness of the Pharisee here, but a boldness as I look up and I see my Savior bleeding for me. This is a, a mirror, you guys. And, and I don't know if you've heard this before. I've heard it a lot and I've kind of sh- shook my head at this question before. But in thinking this week, I, th- I thought, man, this is really the best way, I think, for us to assess maybe how we're thinking of our relationship with God and our approval. I think it'd be helpful. And the question goes like this, right? If you were to tragically die tonight and you were to stand before God and he were to say, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? If your thought is to go, well, because I, because I haven't been that greedy, because I've not been that immoral, I I haven't had an affair, because I'm better than most people. That tells you your confidence is in yourself. That's telling you, showing you that you look at God and go, I'm good enough for you. Or maybe you would just view your Jesus' death on the cross for you as you having a dead car battery and asking someone to come jump it for you. Like Jesus' death on the cross jumped your car battery and you're like, thanks Jesus, I got this right? We're good to go now. Do you say, because I? See, a Christian says, because Jesus. Why should I let you in here? Because Jesus. Because I saw the the blood with the eyes of my heart dripping down the altar. Because I've seen Jesus dying on the cross and he cleared out my locked room. Because Jesus, because God's mercy, because of his grace. You believe that? I'll leave you with this quote in one of my favorite lines from Jerry Bridges' book, The Discipline of Grace. He says, your worst days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. Some of you need to hear that. You think you are, you're not. Look at the cross, see how big it is. He says, and your best days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. These are the polar ends of the spectrum that we're reading about. We live on that spectrum, don't we? So which one are you? Which man are you? Father, I do pray tonight as we explore this incredible parable that you would use it, Holy Spirit, in our lives 
to see the humility of Jesus, to worship at his feet, and to cry out for your mercy knowing that you have offered it to all those who do. God, may we, may we taste of your grace and, and sweetness of your mercy tonight as we go into a time of reflection and taking this meal that represents Christ's death for us. And Lord, I just pray that you would do an effectual work in our hearts that only you can do, that we would be a church, Lord, who truly believes that the way down is the way up. Help us, Father, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.